Let's go. <laughs> Let's go. So, hi everyone, and welcome to Anesthesia Coffee Break. And today we're going to go through my part one Viva exam. So, Stan's going to act as the examiner, and we're going to relive my pain a little bit. So, uh, yeah, let's get cracking. Yeah, time, time for me to have a go to deliver some pain. <laughs> Sounds good. Look All right. To. So, um, just before we start, I know we talked about how sort of I remembered uh, on the day, and you talk, sort of talked about a bit about uh, mm. what you also went through on the day as well. Yeah. Just with regards to approaching like the room, mm-hmm. like how were you feeling? What were your thoughts? Do you remember much of you know mm. your, your surroundings? Actually, yeah. I mean, I did at the Australian Institute of Management, I think, in Fitzroy Street in St. Kilda. And I'm pretty sure I just scoped the place out in the weeks maybe leading up to it just to see where I'd park and make sure I had all of that damn pad. Like, I'm a big fan of just knowing the environment. You know, I think we talk a lot about playing the game as you're going to play it. Like, just because you're a great net player in cricket doesn't mean you're going to perform well when you're out on the field. So I just wanted to familiarize myself with the environment. I remember that parking was around the corner, so I parked there, got there with plenty of time to spare. Like I never want any rush in the morning. Actually, even before that, I just remember that in no other exam did I not have a feel of everything in my periphery. What I mean by that is usually when you sit an exam, you kind of have an idea of all the questions. You can almost visualize them on one A4 page in your mind. And this was the first time I couldn't do that. And I remember my sister just giving me this really great advice, like, you just got to trust yourself for this exam. So the night before, just trust yourself that you've got a filing cabinet or you've got it on your desktop in your mind and you just click on that window and open it or open that filing cabinet and just take out that piece of paper. So instead of having one piece of paper with your whole exam, you just have a filing cabinet full of them, but that's okay. Just trust that it, you know, you can withdraw that page at any time. So that was my mental state. I knew that I couldn't visualize it all, but I would definitely be able to extract the information when required. And, yeah. and that day, did you meet anyone? Did you see any of your study group members? Or I think you just <laughs> in the zone by yourself? Oh, the, I, because it was Survivor, there, there weren't that many people around. I just remember one of my mates who um, they'd failed the Viva previously and they were there and we just had a chat and you know they were like friends, so it was a nice, very pleasant chat. And I'm a, I'm a person who definitely, when I'm nervous, I start talking, so... And, that, and that's a comfortable zone for me. You know, having a bit of a laugh before the exam is a really easy thing for me to do uh, and make, just makes me feel better. So I'd rather have a bit of a chat with anyone that wants to have a chat, um, but also just go through a few things to get my mind into the zone. So I'd, you know, go through my cards, go through my notes. Um, yeah, and that's, again, that's how I prepared. Again, super nervous. And I, I just kept thinking how I've never been into this position where something is so important for my my well-being and then my future it's just never happened before and i stopped getting bogged down by that thought i just went uh, look um, it, this is happening it's like you're on this ride you're about to go down the roller coaster yeah every, everyone's going to be screaming but you're, you're there you've got no choice you're on that ride and you're about to fall so that's it accept it that's right all right so um let's get started the first question you had i assume was um written on that uh written on the board yeah, you know, I can't actually remember, but yeah, it must have been. <laughs> yeah. So the first question is, please draw an LV pressure volume curve. And this is referring to the cardiac LV pressure volume curve. So, you know, as I recall, I've just abbreviated. But as soon as I walked in, I was, I was pretty happy with this because I'd drawn this so many times. And I feel like I knew some serious detail about this about this graph. So the first thing I drew the y-axis, the x-axis, and I labeled it, you know, pressure and um, volume respectively in and the units, millimeters mercury and mils. The next thing I do with this graph is I draw a line at 120 millimeters mercury and a line at 80 millimeters mercury because that's like the the inflection point 
of my one of my curves and also the maximum part of my curve. I then draw 50 mils in volume, a line there, and then 120. And that's, again, so now I've drawn four lines and they cross hatch to roughly transcribe where my curve's going to be. And I then know to draw the absolute minimal required to draw something reasonable and talk while I'm doing it. So I'm, you know, drawing the diastolic curve from points A to B and then upwards I'm drawing uh, the rest of the curve. At point at 80 millimeters mercury, I then do a curve up to 120 and then at the point of valve, valve closure, that's around 100 and then I draw a line down. And so I pretty much just draw that and I could go on, but I know that the examiner is going to interrupt at this point. And, and look, it's a pity you guys can't actually see like you right now, but he's, he's, actually, draw, he's actually air drawing <laughs> this uh, LV pressure curve right in yep. front of me. Right. Um, but, that, but, that's a, but those are really good tips. And, they, and um, those are what I would suggest for trainees when they learn to draw graphs is that after you draw the X and Y axes, having your mind points on the graphs, um, so at least two to four points, and that way you can actually complete, complete the curve or complete the, whatever you're trying to draw. Mm. So that's really good to have those uh, points that you talked about um, in your head. Yeah, good. I remember learning this, I guess, when someone asked me to draw Wigger's diagram, you know, very complicated diagram, so many different aspects of it. And for some reason I was spending like a minute drawing the central venous pressure curve and the exam- and my mate, the examiner or the consultant just goes, why are you wasting your time with that? Just draw the LV pressure and the aortic pressure, just get it on the page and then we'll move on. Mm. And that really flicked something in my head to get to the point. Correct, correct. Ta- time is of the essence because there's mm-hmm. a lot of content to get through. Yes. All right, so the next question is, why does pressure increase in diastole? Yeah, this, is, this sounded like just the most obvious question to me. I was wondering why they would ask it. You know, obviously if you increase volume within the ventricle, the pressure will increase um, at increasing rate as the compliance of the ventricle decreases. And I remember reading this later, you know, the ventricle is amazing because it's very easy to fill and very difficult to overfill. Again, it's so obvious, but just being able to verbalize that in a succinct fashion quickly is probably what's most important. And I also mentioned that there's a sharper rise in pressure doing the atrial kick. So Bernard Levy, you know, the prescribed text actually has a little bump at the, you know, point just before you get the sharp pressure rise from, uh, you know, at the 120 Mm. mil volume part. And the next question is, is it an active process? Now, this sounds really silly, but I never even thought of this as an active process in the context of this graph. Um, but I you know, quickly thought about it. Well, well yes, it's um, because calcium is pumped back into the sarcoplasmic reticulum, um, and that's an active process, and you can increase it with, I think, sorry, beta-1 stimulation. Yeah. And when is it compromised? So then I thought, well, there's like a passive component of diastole, the fact that it is a chamber, and then there's an active component. So if active component needs energy, well, ischemia is going to compromise that. So any myocardial ischemia, decreased oxygen delivery, HP delivery, whatever. And then the passive component, I just thought of the normal stuff, hypertension, but also tamponading, uh, tamponade physiology, effusions, any masses. And that's spot on. I mean, that's why, um, you know, on echo reports, they talk about impaired relaxation. Mm-hmm. Because it is actually a almost an active process, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, so, how about cross clamp of the aorta? What what happens then? Now, I started answering this question. I found that in this exam, I lost sight of a lot of things because I just wanted to give everything. So, I started talking about preload and contractility, and then you know afterload as well. I knew the answer, but the examiner just wanted me to say what's the main thing afterload. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I, I I got to that, and then I moved on. So, I said increased afterload. And what happens to stroke volume? Yep, so I know that that decreases. So I was just looking at my graph, um, the afterload line, which I had changed and showing that it decreases. And how can you make stroke volume return to normal? 
And again, just looking at the graph, there's only a few ways really. So I can increase my left ventricle end diastolic volume or my preload point or increase contractility by altering that contractility line. And either of those mechanisms allow me to return the stroke volume to normal. All right. So I think uh, mm. now we're going to move on to the next stem, um, which, is on, which is on kidneys. Yep. So how does the kidneys concentrate urine? I was really happy with this because I think I've gone through this many times and I've taught many people this during my study because Vander, the prescribed text, was a really long book and I actually read it cover to cover and summarized it because I thought it was very verbose. And I was, anyway, I was very happy with this question. So I straight away just said countercurrent multiplier, countercurrent exchanger, and the role of urea. These are the three mechanisms that are most important. And then what are the maximum and minimum values for concentration? Yep, so I just said 70 to 1400 milliosmoles per litre. And again, I wasn't bogged down by the fact that there's multiple numbers here. Maybe some people say 100, some people say 1,200 for maximum. Because they don't, I don't think they care about no, the fine right. difference. Correct. Yeah. And, and as I sort of mentioned before, you know, there, there are many different versions of the truth, but more, more or less they tend to fall within, within the ballpark, especially mm-hmm. when you're dealing with numbers. Mm-hmm. How does dilute urine occur? At this point I said decreased water reabsorption in the collecting duct, uh, decreased antidiuretic hormone or ADH. And how does concentrated urine occur yeah so as above as we meant as i mentioned before but then i went into detail about the counter current multiplier and i found that this was one of the most verbose sections in vanda but i'd come up with a just the most to me the simplest way of saying this so i just drew the loop of the kidneys i showed that on the ascending loop you've got impermeability to water but sol- but permeability to solutes you have this sodium potassium two chloride transport pump which establishes a horizontal 200 milliosmol gradients. That's the first number one step. Um, and that, that, that's the first thing that happens. Then I move over to the descending limb. And on the diagram, I show that this is permeable to water, but impermeable to solute. Um, and this then means that you have a flow of urine down a very long loop, which multiplies that horizontal 200 milliosmol gradient with a vertical gradient. And again, you can go into so much detail with this, but to me, that was the essence. And that's all I said. And they moved on straight away. Yeah. And then tell me about uh, ADH. Uh, yep. So at this point, um, I just went through where it acts and what are the receptors. Um, so you know, acts on the collecting ducts. Transcription encodes for aquaporins to be plugged into the collecting duct. Receptors are V1 and V2 receptors in general. Um, also, the fact that it is a non-apeptide release from the posterior pituitary, and you know, it act on various 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 areas of the body, but essentially from the collecting duct. And then uh, you've got a question which I had. How yeah. does a kidney handle an acid load? And again, straight from Vanda, I just remember that Vanda had these three points. So I just said, well, three points, bicarb reabsorption, titratable acid excretion, and the role of ammonium. Yep. Show me how bicarb is reabsorbed. And there's one of those things, I think when I ask this question of examinees now, it's one of those things that it's easy to let, let go of, and it's got a lot of bicarbs and H2Os and CO2s floating around everywhere. Anyway, I drew the cell, I drew the lumen, luminal membrane and the basolateral membrane, and I just showed the progress of each part through there um, with carbonic anhydrase as being the catalyst at various points. Now, um, I think next you've got shown a blood gas. Yep. So on this blood gas, it has a PO2 of 80 millimeters mercury, mm-hmm. a PCO2 of 61, mm-hmm. a bicarb of 28, mm-hmm. and a pH of 7. Mm-hmm. So now you get asked, what is this gas show? Yeah. First thing that the examiner asked was, can this ever be a mixed venous sample? And I said, well, look, the 80, I always thought that uh, I've got to find a way for this to be true. So I, I said, no, unless the patient is under hyperbaric oxygen. 
probably reasonably correct, but the examiner wasn't impressed with that and just moved on to, you know, what is this? And at this point, I've just said, I've just talked through a blood gas as anyone would talk to a, through a blood gas. The oxygenation is safe. The pH is 7.21, so it's mildly acidemic. The PCO2 is elevated, so there is a respiratory acidotic component. And the bicarb is mildly elevated, normal being, you know, 24, so it's 28. So this is a respiratory acidosis with some acute compensation. And, and look, just touching on the point of mm. the mixed venous sample, with hyperbaric conditions, you still wouldn't get a PO2 of 80. Oh, uh, really? So that's why the examiner wasn't impressed. <laughs> <laughs> so I, the, the reason for that is, remember that with the oxygen content equation, it's 1.34 times your saturations, which is you know, going to be 100%, um, times your hemoglobin. Mm. And remember that the it doesn't matter how much higher your partial pressure is, mm. you're only going to add a maximum of two mils Mm. Um, you know, even in the most mm. hyperbaric conditions to oxygen content. So, you know, if you look at oxygen consumption, when it hits back down, mm-hmm. um, you, you're still going to get, you know, uh, saturations of 75%, mm-hmm. um, percent, which is um, around a PO2 of, you know... Well, 45, 40. Yeah, 45, yeah. 50. And most you can yeah, do is 50. Because when you're looking at PO2 of 80, mm-hmm. you, what you're saying is that you've got a mixed venous saturations mm-hmm. of above 91%. Mm, okay. Yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, coach. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. So next question is: Why does bicarb rise? I was pretty happy with myself at this point because uh, you know I think things were going pretty well. Uh, I thought I'd done pretty well in that kidney question, and I'd actually never thought of it in this way. I always thought acute and chronic compensation was all part of the, the kidney, and I never linked back to the fact that it's actually part of the buffering process. So as I had already drawn the CO two plus H two O arrow to H plus and bicarb equation, I just noticed, oh, well, this is, this will just, you know, increased CO2 will drive that equation forward so that there's more bicarb. And that's really just the law of mass action. And that's everything with acute compensation. It's just the buffering effect of the existing physiology of the blood, not due to the kidneys at all. So I, I, I think, I feel like I thought on my feet and got that right straight away. And we then moved on. And then with the next question, they start talking about exercise physiology. Mm-hmm. So what is the maximum cardiac output uh, in exercise? Yeah, so I, again, I hadn't really prepared for this. So, you know, I thought five litres per minute in a normal person. So I thought, oh, you know, five times that 25 litres a minute uh, can occur. If I, was, if I multiplied, you know, an increased stroke volume by an increased heart rate, I thought that'd be reasonable. And the maximum ventilation? Yes, maximum ventilation. I think I'd read this somewhere that it was over 100 litres per minute. It can be quite high, can't it? So what I was thinking is that you can, like if you do a rough calculation here, you can have vital capacity breaths and you can increase that to 40, you know, 40 breaths per minute. So you could achieve some ridiculous rates of breathing. And that's where I think I may have got that number from. Yep. So maybe for a short, yeah, short, maybe, short, yeah, maybe, absolutely. maybe let's go with that, Sam. Um, now they've asked you to draw a graph of work rate on the X axes and oxygen consumption on the Y axes. And I really had no idea with this. So I, I, think, I think I drew something where you get this inflection uh, as the work rate increases, then suddenly oxygen consumption actually increases in a steeper fashion. And often you see this, I think, on CPX testing, cardiopulmonary exercise testing. Yep. And, and look, I'm just looking ahead at your um, mm-hmm. at your pharmacology viva. Yep. <laughs> I've actually given some context to it. Uh, so it was a trainee examiner who asked me a very long-winded question. Um, that was essentially, what are the ideal pharmacokinetic properties of a volatile? And I was so frustrated because I, you know, I thought I was doing really well with the physiology and it took that person 
ages to ask me this question. I just wanted them to move on with it. And, um, and, and in the end, I, you know, I think we learned this technique of thinking of a hypothetical answer, you know, a, a hypothetical situation, which is just such a common exam principle. So what's the ideal properties of a muscle relaxant? What's the ideal properties of, of whatever? And I never thought about this one before, and it just felt really brief. Um, but yeah, so please go. So, so just just with your experience, but the long-winded question, like, mm. were they asking you a question mm-hmm. that you answered, but then they were trying to ask it to you again? No, this is, a, this is a first question, and I just wanted to actually answer it, and they just kept on going, reiterating a question that didn't need reiteration. Right. <laughs> and But did you try to answer it, like, when they asked you the first time, or, or they just kept on? No, they just kept talking. They just kept talking. And I was trying to, I was trying to get my answer yeah. in. And, uh, but no, but I, I think it's, I suspect it was because of a trainee examiner. Which yes. Is, yeah. So the question is, you know, what are the pharmacokinetic properties that would make you choose one volatile over another? Yeah. So I, I said, I think after a bit of time, as I was trying to work out what this person was saying, I said fast onset, uh, which is the blood gas, gas partition coefficient, fast offset, which is the blood gas partition coefficient, and maybe the oil gas partition coefficient, as, as well as any other tissue blood partition coefficients. I thought the fact that it's minimally metabolized, that there's nil active metabolites, and that was really, really about it, really, and that maybe there's lung elimination. So I was trying to think of ADME, absorption, distribution, metabolism, and elimination, excretion. Mm. It just seemed like a very brief answer, but often these first questions are on reflection. Mm. Mm. And that's probably what I would have answered to. I mean, essentially, you know, the, the question is, why would you choose sevoflurane over other volatile agents? And pretty much that's what you've described, you know, mm. fast onset, fast offset. Mm-hmm. And then you can often discuss about the differences, you know, at, as, a, as a continuation uh, about desflurane versus sevoflurane mm. um, yep. and whether they actually have any clinical differences at all. But that's, that's another topic for another day. Yep. All right. Now, how does the blood gas partition coefficient relate? Yeah, so having a lower blood gas partition coefficient means there's lower solubi- solubility in blood. Therefore, you get a faster onset that's more effective, you know, the um, partial pressure exerted much quicker onto the effect site. And how does the oil gas partition coefficient uh, affect recovery? Yeah, so just thinking about the fact that if you have a person with far more fat tissue and the gas has a large oil gas partition coefficient, that would be there'll be more gas, more volatile absorbed into these um, oil-rich tissues. And why do you want a fast onset? So I think I said something about fast onset to facilitate surgery, but also moving through the stages of anesthesia faster to surgical anesthesia and past those kind of lower Goodell stages, so the past, past the excitatory stage, and then considering other operator and patient factors. I can't re- remember exactly what I said there, but they seem to be satisfied with that answer. What are the metabolites of uh, sevoflurane? So all I knew really at the time was fluoride, but she wanted more, so... I said compound A at that point. It's more of an absorbent byproduct, but that's the only other thing I could remember. But just looking it up recently, the metabolites are apparently fluoride and hexafluoroisopropanolol. Anyway, she moved on and seemed satisfied with the fact that I said compound A. Great. And what is the problem with compound A? So as I started talking, she cut me off. She just wanted to see that I knew the basics. So I started talking about theoretically high concentrations can be toxic to rats um, at above 200 parts per million, but didn't seem like the, the, this examiner wanted to know too much more about that and was happy that I knew the basics. Yeah. So how about TFAs? How does TFAs cause hepatitis? Yeah, so TFA binds to hepatocytes. It forms a haptin, which is then an immune-sensitized compound, and this can then be hepatotoxic. And what's the risk? So the risk is about 1 in 10,000 to 1 in 30,000 in adults and 1 in 80,000 to 1 in 200,000 in children. So, you know, less risk in children. 
and what are the risk factors? As I recall, I, I mentioned something about uh, female fat, 40s, re-exposure to health, and these are possible risk factors. We're going to go on to another topic. So what drugs can you use to lower blood pressure intraoperatively? At this point, I had this concept in my mind of, you know, agents that lower blood pressure, and I had this whole answer. So I started going into central alpha agonists, beta blockers, alpha blockers, nitrodilators, arteriodilators, calcium channel blockers, ACE inhibitors, and A2RB, uh, as well as diuretics. And I was, I was giving this massively complicated answer, um, but it wasn't anesthetic or intraoperative specific. So yeah, yeah, she goes on, as you'll mention, but, you know, would you use diuretic intraoperatively? And I said, well, probably not. What type of beta blocker is propanolol? And non-selective. And why selective better? So it has less beta-2 effects, which are bronchoconstriction and peripheral vessel vasoconstriction. And uh, disadvantages of beta blockers? So essentially thought bradycardia hypertension, which are their existing actions taken further. It could exacerbate heart failure, increase wall tension, uh, you know, peripheral vascular disease, uh, contraindications, asthma. And I also remember back in med school that decreased mood was also one of those things that happens with beta blockers, which she then probed into this to clarify, um, which and, I just justified. And what do you think that's all about? Actually, I'm actually not sure. I, th- I think it has to do with the idea that propanolol is a lot more lipid-soluble mm. and that it certainly has a, has a central nervous system effects. Mm. Okay. Probably, probably more than the other beta blockers. Mm. So propanolol can cause uh. sedation. How about esmolol? What, what type is esmolol? I just mentioned it's a short-acting cardioselective beta blocker with high clearance due to red blood cell esterase metabolism. And how can you prolong its action? So this was a bit confusing to me. And I just thought, well, I guess if you kept on giving it like an infusion, that would work. And examiners seemed happy with that. What other beta blockers can you also use? Metoprolol. And what are the benefits of using metoprolol? So I had this whole answer. Anytime I think of beta blockers, I think of oxygen supply demand. So I mentioned decreased oxygen demand by decreasing contractility and heart rate and increasing oxygen delivery, uh, again, by decreasing the heart rate. So increasing the diastolic filling time. And then some others that have been, you know, born out in some studies, but decreased plaque fissuring <coughs> and decreased platelet activation and aggregation. Now, at this point, you had a, another examiner. What's yeah. in an ampule of thio? Is it, yep, so sodium thiopentone, 30 milligrams of sodium carbonate, and 0.8 atmospheres of nitrogen. And why? It's alkaline to have a particular tautomeric structure and also to minimize oxidation and any carbonic acid production from trace CO2. And, you know, I think... The examiners have just gone, ah, amazing. You've answered all the questions really well. well I mean, I still have uh, this whole uh, uh, stats question to go through, <laughs> which we won't have to go through. Yeah, so, so, yeah. so at, at um, the time that Lai and I sat, uh, we had to learn statistics. And I can see they've actually asked you quite a bit on statistics with mm. uh, categorical data. So we, we don't, luckily, we don't need to go through that. Mm-hmm. But I can see that, uh, yeah, you actually went through quite a bit with that and asking, you know, Discussions about T-tests and parametric and non-parametric tests. Definitely knew your stuff. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was very happy with that stats question. And uh, I can see that uh, you were actually showing off your mathematical genius abilities. Oh, I was uh, very happy try, with that too, yeah. Trying to solve these <coughs> complex equations. You're, I think you were actually trying to solve the, for the p-value using uh, chi-squared, I believe. Yeah, yes, you were, because the examiner said, this isn't a test of mathematical ability. <laughs> That's, right. <laughs> That's right. I started drawing it, and then he said, don't worry, this isn't a test of mathematical ability. And I thought, well, you asked me the question, so if you don't want the answer, then don't ask me the question. <laughs> oh, fantastic. <laughs> All right, so that's pretty much it for your Viva. That's, mm. the, that's the nuts and bolts of it. That's a really good learning experience for everyone. 
what what are some of your thoughts uh, coming out of that? Mm. I guess just from the content point of view, you know, at every point the examiner was trying to move on, keep moving, with things didn't didn't persist at particular topics. Just the fact that I think you know a lot of the texts that we read are so complex, and to be able to synthesize that into an answer that you could give as a couple of words is so important when you try to put your information together. So whether that's by reading other people's notes, because you know some people have amazing notes where they've already done that work. So you know, read the detail of something like the kidneys and you know countercurrent multipliers, and then summarize it, knowing that you might need to know some detail. But you just want to be able to get a few points that just say everything to the examiner, to your colleague. Being able to teach something on a whiteboard, you know, with so little space, is probably a good way of trying to you know, get get your ideas across. One of the advice that I give to trainees is when you start preparing for your short answer questions, mm. it's actually good if you have that ability to think about how you answer a short answer question in terms of how you would answer a viva. So, mm. in other words, you know, if you got asked a question about the counter current mechanism uh, in your short answer question, mm. how would you go about drawing a diagram and explaining it? in a couple of minutes. Because remember that a short answer question is not just going to be about the countercurrent mechanism. Mm. You know, it's going to be a little bit a little bit more, but um, that might be sort of one component which you need to sort of explain in two, three minutes. And having that ability in the written form and can actually hold you in sort of good state to how you actually can present that in the Viva. No, that sounds really good. Okay, so that's uh, episode six, My Viva. Thanks very much for listening. Anesthesia Coffee Break. If you have any questions, please email us. And again, share and subscribe to our podcast. And uh, if there's any information that you do want, any other podcasts that you want, and if you want to be on this podcast, please contact us. And uh, yeah, thanks very much for listening. <laughs>